1: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, everyone, and welcome
2: to the latest episode of Hardwood Knocks. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic and now Mortal Enemy co-host, Dan Favalli. I have to say the Mortal Enemy part because we're now locked into a first-round matchup between the New York Knicks and the Atlanta Hawks, which would have been almost inconceivable. And we're going to stop because I just knocked over my drink here and it is exploding everywhere on the floor. (laughs) Are you all right? I'm okay, but I'm in my wife's office and might have just ruined some of her work things.
0: (laughs) Um, Do you need me to vamp while you clean that up?
2: Yes. This is going to take me um, a few
0: minutes. (laughs) Well, holy crap. I'll um, come back. <laughs> well, for anyone who's listening, we are going to eventually talk about awards today once Adam gets his his life under control. Uh, a lot of the play-in matchups, we're still talking as some of the stuff is being decided. Uh, but a lot of the playoff matchups has already been set. We are going to have Milwaukee and Miami in the first round in the East. That's going to be an interesting matchup just because of what Miami did to Milwaukee last year. Giannis got injured at one point in that series, but the Bucs were not playing well. They do see more playoff proof this season. That's still going to be a fun rematch. Knicks versus Hawks. That's, as Adam mentioned, was inconceivable at the start of the season. The Knicks being in fourth place in the East is just absolutely wild when you're looking at relative to their expectations. Philly is locked into that first spot in the East. Brooklyn is in second. So they're going to play the winners of the play-in. Boston is in seventh, Washington's in eighth, Indiana is in ninth, and Charlotte's in tenth. Uh, the play going to be interesting. I think it's probably going to go, just looking how injured Boston is without Jalen Brown, there's a chance the Wizards win that first play-in game. And then Boston, I, I don't know who's going to win Indiana-Charlotte. If anyone has any thoughts on that one, that's a really tough one to pick because Indiana's better on paper, but they're banged up a lot. See, I'm I'm all out of sorts with the bracket at the moment, Adam, if you're listening to me right now.
2: I, I am. I'm all out of sorts in my regular life. Are you Live good? Of pod- podcasting, right? I'm, you- I'm good. I can't say the same about my wife's desk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is awesome. Um, do you want to get to what we're actually going to do with this podcast? If anyone in the room has any questions throughout this about what we're talking about or any play in playoff questions, we will answer them here. But Adam is going to tell you what we're actually doing today.
2: Yeah, it's a word pick day. It's the final day of the regular season as we're recording this, so it is time to jump into all of the major NBA awards. We're talking MVP, we're talking Rookie of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, Sixth Man of the Year, Most Improved Player, Coach of the Year, and Executive of the Year, which I don't think too many people care about, but we're going to do it in the name of completeness. I don't know what order we're going to go here, but Dan and I both have our ballots built out for the top three with some honorable mentions for each of the non-MVP awards, and then our top five as the NBA MVP ballot is actually structured for that biggest of individual accolades.
0: The So I have it set up in order since I'm leading us through it uh, of what we did it in the preseason. So we'll start with executive of the year, move through coach of the year, then six man of the year, rookie uh, defensive player of the year, rookie of the year, most improved MVP. That was a weird order. We did it. I think we weren't too interested in defensive player of the year at the time. And I'm not going to be, be on. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm not sure I'm that interested in it either. I think people want to make the it a debate. I don't really think it is. Noah says in the chat, I dare Dan to, Dan to cape for SGA for most improved player. I dare him. You don't need to dare me because it's no, he's going, going to. He's, he's going to. So I'm going to. Uh, just want to make that clear. Let's start with executive of the year. I'll start with mine on this one. I think this is a no-brainer, and it's not the no-brainer people have turned it into. James Jones is number one on my ballot. Sean Marks is number two. Daryl Morey is number three. I'll save you at honorable mentions, um, so I'll let you talk about those once you get to yours. For me, just I James Jones is the clear number one for me. It's the Chris Paul trade was huge. People are putting Chris Paul in the MVP discussion. James Harden has since fallen out of the MVP discussion because of availability. That's not the only good move that James Jones made. Jay Crowder, Torrey Craig has been absolutely monstrous for them. Uh, getting them in a position where you have um, competent players, you know, and this, I guess, gives them credit for years past, but the bringing Dario Sharks back, he was so good at the five for most of this year, that's kind of fallen off. I guess if you want to build a case against him, you could point out that they didn't draft Tyrese Halliburton when he was there, and could you imagine this team with Tyrese Halliburton on it, just... Uh, they would we, be we did it before
2: the season started and really liked what we saw there. And then and we I, just didn't get to see it.
0: I do think the one thing you can give him credit for, like last season leaking over into this season, was the way that they structured the campaign contracts so that they could bring him back. I want players to get paid more than they are. So I'm not saying I don't want to, you know, oh, campaign is underpaid. How great is that for the Suns? But you rolled the dice on him and put yourself in a position to keep him. And he's been on the peripherals of the six man of the year discussion for people who've watched the suns anyway. So that's my ballot. I don't think anyone comes close to touching James Jones. And I know Sean Marks made the move for Harden. That's not his only case. Bringing in Bruce Brown been very helpful for them. Jeff green has been super helpful for them. I get all of that. And then making the Harden move, there was a risk and it became a necessity when you look at all the games their stars has had missed, but there's also sort of the element of the no brainer there where it's, Oh, trade for a top five player or don't without giving up any real stars in the process. That's not a hard decision to make. It's not that hard anyway.
2: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree, which is why I also have Sean Marks at number two and really a distant second to James Jones at number one. You know, you you mentioned the moves that that Marks deserves credit for. And even if it is a no-brainer, it still took some serious gumption to actually pull the trigger and acquire James Harden, in the middle of a season when you already have the stars on board, when you already have a first-year head coach in Steve Nash who hasn't had to deal with that kind of locker room dynamic, at least in that kind of role. That, coupled with Bruce Brown's acquisition uh, going into the season, coupled with uh, bringing in Blake Griffin, who has looked uh, at least a little bit reinvigorated. Jeff Green has been like he did, He did make enough good moves here that even if it's low-hanging fruit, to nominate him for this award. He definitely deserves the nomination. I do have a uh, Travis Schlenk from the Atlanta Hawks in my number three spot. I think we've seen as the season has progressed that the off moves, the really aggressive off moves that included bringing in Danilo Gallinari and Bogdan Bogdanovich, uh, the in-season move of trading for Lou Williams, uh, Chris Dunn signing hasn't really paid off nor has Tony Snells, but so many of these moves have started to look better as the season has progressed and the injuries have dissipated, allowing the Hawks to play with more of their full rotation and establish some semblance of consistency on a night-to-night basis. Uh, beyond that, the move from Lloyd Pierce to Nate McMillan in the middle of the year has had a hugely positive repercussions on this team. It enabled the entire rotation to start playing better, to start playing more cohesive basketball. And it was a huge inflection point for the Hawks right in the middle of the season. Like that that has to matter. Um, My honorable mentions, Leon Rose and Sam Presti. I think Rose's candidacy kind of speaks for itself because the Knicks have made that leap from bottom feeder, who basically everyone was predicting to make the playoffs, to the number four seed in the Eastern Conference. And meanwhile, Sam Presti has continued to basically force the NBA to expand the first round because no one else has any picks.
0: (laughs) I I'm so hesitant to give, uh, to give credit to Sam Presti just because the tanking stuff is uh, veers too far into what do we treat and view players as in that scenario. I'm also, it's awkward to, to see them tell Al Horford to go home and face zero repercussions for it, but I totally get it. I mean, they have he has stacked the deck for them, and th- their rebuild is off to a great start. So I don't begrudge anyone who would pick them, but I I couldn't put him in my top three. Leon Rose is interesting in the top three, not one I gave consideration to, but when you specifically look at a lot of the one year deals he signed, Alec Burks, Nerlens Noel, uh, Derek the, the Derek Rose trade ended up being everyone, including myself, lampooned the Knicks for that. The only truly terrible move they made has been resigning alfred payton and then continuing to play alfred payton until the 636 minute mark in the first quarter uh so that's a great pick and the schlank one is sort of a slow burn i don't know if the hawks have been good enough for long enough or healthy enough i should say for long enough but that that was a really interesting one too and i wonder if he's going to get some extra love that we that i didn't necessarily consider when i was building my ballot
2: i don't think he's going to Just because the first half of the season is still entrenched in people's minds, but we've seen that the moves did pan out once those external factors started to be minimized. By the way, did you see me successfully take a drink out of what remains of my drink without spilling it all over myself?
0: No, I was too busy freaking out because my Teams has not been going. Teams app has not been going off at all today because it's a Sunday, and it decided right when we podcasted that the messages are incoming. So the the you hear in the background, the pinging mm. is is that. So I was trying to get that out of the way. But I'm this has been you. the
2: livest of our live episodes.
0: It's fine. Don't worry. You guys are gonna get a real pre recorded all NBA teams one for anyone who's still listening that comes after the awards ballot. Thank you for anyone who's sticking through this. Do you you want to start us off on coach of the year?
2: Yeah, it was. I feel like this award is a tough one every season because are you recognizing the best coach in the league? Are you recognizing the coach who exceeded expectations most? Even though we have this conversation, what seems like every single season, there still isn't really that established criteria, which makes it such a nebulous, difficult to predict award. So I tend to view it more as like a mix of those two things, like both the coaching quality and the level of improvement, which pushed Tom Thibodeau barely past Monty Williams and Quinn Snyder for me. I have Nate McMillan and Doc Rivers, as my honorable mentions, who deserve a lot of credit for what they've done with their respective teams. But I think it's a three-person race for this award, and I'd really be okay with Putting Tibbs, Monty, and Quinn's names in hats and drawing them out randomly, and that is a justifiable order. I mean, Thibodeau has established a culture in New York, a defensive identity, which is a stark contrast to the biggest weaknesses of previous iterations of this Knicks organization. Monty Williams has made Chris Paul, who is not always the easiest locker room presence, into a bona fide positive leader for this young team that has excelled and jumped straight into the race for the top of the Western conference and the jazz have been maybe the best team in basketball for most of this season with a fairly unorthodox roster construction for today's NBA. That is also a deviation from what he's done in the past. I get arguments for all three of them. I think that the establishment of the culture and the failures of the Knicks over the last few years were enough context for me to just Barely marginally bump Tibbs to number
0: one. Yeah, the you have for the unexpectedness of where the Knicks are. I, I think wanted out for Tibbs. I had Monty Williams at the top for a lot of this. He is number two for me, and I have Quinn Snyder third. The Jazz are a fucking machine. They just you can talk about whether stuff will hold up in the in the playoffs. Uh, this is a regular season award, so I don't care. But they just. They're a machine. They've had Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell injured for a good chunk of time towards the end of the year. They still have the best defense in the league right now. So, the, And the things, you're not going to be on the court for the Jazz. This is, might be Jordan Clarkson's biggest 6 minute a year case, by the way. You don't play minutes if you don't try on defense for Utah. And Jordan Clarkson has played a ton of minutes. Getting ahead of myself there. But to have someone like Jordan Clarkson give that effort to, yes, you have the best drop defender in the league and Rudy Gobert, who everything is structured around. But Maybe like, the best ever. But to get what you have out of that defense when you just don't have any elite defenders aside from Rudy Gobert on your team. So I give the Jazz's consistency. And I guess it hasn't always been there. Their transition defense can get iffy. And we've seen, you know, different Colt. Took Bogdan and a little while to get going. They have the best record in the league. So I don't know how you don't have them at least on here. But Tom Thibodeau is number one for me, though. And the Knicks are fourth. I don't think, even if you... Saw this leap from Julius Randle coming, or if you don't want to give him credit for it, which that's fine too. The Knicks have a top five defense. Why? There, you look at look at anyone on this team on this roster. No one screams this is a top five defensive team. It just doesn't. And the fact that he's yeah, you have guys who are good on defense. Nerlens Noel or Mitchell Robinson before he got injured. Okay, great, grand, wonderful. Frankie Lakina hasn't even played a ton, so that's almost why I'm detracting points from Tibbs. That's why it's not a runaway, by the way. Uh, so they're not even playing, like, necessarily their best defensive specialist on the team. Derek Rose has busted his ass on the defensive end since coming over. There's been improvement from Randall. I think I've seen the biggest improvement of anyone on the roster defensively is with R.J. Barrett, and maybe that's to be expected when you're going from rookie to sophomore, but he's actually been an asset on that end. I The job he has done there, I'm – very curious to see what happens long-term with the Knicks just because so many of the guys seem like placeholders. What are we, you know, how is Julius Randall going to hold up next season after playing so many minutes this year? I'm not even just trying to troll. I'm genuinely concerned about the sustainability of what the Knicks have done this season specifically though. We both have them as a bottom five team in the league coming into this year. They are now, they might finish with the 10th best record in the league, depending on how the Sunday games shake out. I think he has to be the choice. Monty Williams comes close I, I do feel like maybe he's overthought some of his lineup decisions, though. And the the DeAndre Ayton inconsistency train, I attribute some of it to him, at least, just because he's overseeing the team. I don't look. He's, he's finishing, too. So I'm not trying to detract from him. But those are just splitting hairs. That's what I was looking at.
2: I will say I always feel uncomfortable picking this award because we are not in the locker rooms or at practices seeing how much of the improvement and how much of the success is actually credited to the coaches. So it always feels like an uninformed attempt to be informed with an award. And with that caveat out of the way, I was pretty close to having McMillan jump into my top three. I think it's more a tier of four than a tier of three, just because he took over a team that was very much down in the dumps and struggling to live up to the preseason expectations mid season, a roster that was dealing with a lot of injuries that had prevented continuity. You had the John Collins situation kind of looming in the background. Like, is he going to demand a trade? Mm -hmm. Is he just not going to play as effectively because he knows that he's going to be leaving next season and doesn't want to waste energy on a team that isn't succeeding. But since he took over, you know, and I'm assuming that the Hawks beat the Tanktastic Houston Rockets this afternoon after we're recording this. But if they do, they would be 27 and 11 under McMillan, which is a 51 win pace over the course of a 72 game season, which would match the number of wins the Jazz have right now with one game left for the best record in the league. Like that's how good the Hawks have been since he took over.
0: This is also the, the two other things I would add about what makes picking this award as us problematic one we're not the oh look at this after the timeout play that the coach ran like that's not our forte and that can certainly be part of it for some people and the other thing is i always have i have to winnow down my list from like 15 candidates at the start i you know taylor jenkins nate mcmillan as you already outlined he was one of the honorable mentions for me I think you could also make a very strong case for Doc Rivers because of what Philadelphia has done this season. People were kind of dumping all over Terry Stotts, but the Blazers' defense has been legitimately good since Yusuf Nurkic has been back. Surprise, surprise, You they needed their big man to competently protect the rim. That's shocking, shocking, Adam. I don't know how anyone could have seen that coming. I could talk myself into a little bit of love for Steve Nash. Injuries in and out of Brooklyn, I know he has the talent, and a great assistant coaching staff. I also look at this as a full coaching staff award, by the way, not just we. It's awarded to one person, but it's a coaching staff award. The Nets are second in the East, and they've their big three has played what seven games together, eight. So that that's another route that you could go, and I could go on. And, you know, does James Mike Borrego, Malone need some love too? Mike Malone, uh, Rick Carlisle. You could also talk to yourself, James Rago. I was mentioning how has Charlotte been even close to league average on defense this year? So. That's what makes this award especially tough for me as well.
2: Yeah, it's it's a virtually impossible one to predict, and I think this is one of the rare seasons where there really isn't a one hundred percent true bona fide front runner, so much as a front running group. I, I don't. I think Tibbs has to be the
0: front runner. The, the Knicks are.
2: I haven't looked at the betting odds or anything. I think. I mean, we both picked him, but I I think it's a narrow gap. And I wonder if it's almost like unanimously perceived as him and first with a narrow gap.
1: Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G.
0: We're up to sixth man of the year, which is mine. I'm going to preface this with this, and you can call me out on this next year, listeners, if my logic is inconsistent. When it comes to most improved player, I don't like awarding it to year two guys, which is why I, when De'Aaron Fox had his major leap, I did not vote for him, even though I was very tempted to. And for sixth man of the year this season, I found it a little corny that Lou Will and Montrezl Harrell were both top three on the ballot last year. So I was not going to pick. Two people from the same team, which is why I think there are going to be some people who are angry with my ballot. I have Joe Ingles at one, Tyrese Halliburton at two, and Tim Hardaway Jr. at three. I Awards technically are due Monday. I reserve the right to change for another eight and a half hours as of this recording. The third spot was tough for me. Tim Hardaway Jr. shooting, I think, is super valuable to... Dallas he's also shooting a career high I believe 52.1% inside the arc this year has tried pretty hard on D his shooting splits can be too reliant on Doncic being on the floor but you could say that pretty much about anyone Jalen Brunson came pretty close to getting this for me I also consider Derek Rose Thaddeus Young Bobby Portis Jordan Clarkson obviously Cameron Payne deserves some love here as well Joe Engel is one out for me I know he started almost 30 games that could also work in his favor as the argument for sixth man of the year. Where if you have injuries and need to insert someone in the starting lineup, naturally or logistically speaking, it would be your sixth man, would it? Not like the next guy up would be the sixth man. I know it doesn't work like that. He's just been so phenomenal. He has a true shooting percentage of two trillion as a perimeter player. Is that I think it's two trillion year?
2: point seven. Just so you know, so,
0: that's wildly impressive. Still has the ability to create a little bit off the dribble. He does still do okay on defense. This is I don't think he's the same player who really shut down Paul George in that OKC series a few years ago. But he's such a smart, accurate player. And then anyone who has a problem with Tyrese Halliburton being on this ballot, he also did start, I think, 20 games this year. And he's out for the season with his knee injury. But he definitely played enough to crack it. The dude is shooting over 40% from three. Played fantastic defense as a rookie. Is just a... It's not fill the box score because he's so low volume, but he contributes in every single area. It was he's basically the fattiest young of guards, except he can shoot. And so it's he was so good that maybe I wanted to reward him because we know he's not going to win Rookie of the Year. I have if anyone has a problem with him making this ballot, though they are they are free to at me on Twitter and, and we can we can have a discussion about it. I'm not going to change my mind, but we can have a discussion about it.
2: It feels like there are roughly 400 candidates for this award, right? Like you can name a team and you might even have multiple candidates from said team.
0: Do you know what so, the thing I thought about really quickly was like, they probably needed to play more, but the Knicks technically have th- three or four guys that you could look at and be like, should they be on this? Emmanuel quickly, Derek Rose, Noel didn't start for most of the season because or, you know, didn't start until Mitchell Robinson was injured. And even Alec Burks, did he play enough to get there? But he's, been like lights out and crunch time for them. So that was the team where it was, I think there's one clear guy that you go with and it's Derrick Rose mm-hmm. probably, but there were four names that sprung to mind just from that team.
2: Yeah, no, I uh, I agree with you. Um, I I did not agree with your limitation to one player per team, just because I think I view this award more as recognizing the best backup in basketball, not necessarily recognizing the best first man off the bench in basketball, even if it's technically named sixth man and not sixth or seventh man. So I did have Joe Ingles first for all the same reasons that you listed out. I had Jordan Clarkson third. I think despite the inefficiency with which he's played during the second half of the season, the scoring role that he's filled is so valuable and necessary. They need somebody who's willing to come off the bench and take those difficult shots and put pressure on defense off the bounce. Um, so regardless of the efficiency numbers there, I think it's pretty clear how important he's been to that team. I had Jalen Brunson and Thaddeus Young, as my honorable mentions, and I had Derrick Rose at number two on my ballot. I strongly considered moving him up to number one. You know, we, we talked about it a little bit before we began recording, what he did in Detroit is is just not enough for him to ascend to that number one spot. He wasn't making the team better. He wasn't shooting the ball with any semblance of efficiency while he was a member of the Pistons. But what he's done in 35 games with the Knicks has been immaculate. I mean, this team is 11.9 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. And that does not seem like a fluke. He's playing... I would argue the smartest basketball of his career. He's not forcing the issue. He's accepted that his peak level of athleticism just isn't quite there anymore. He's a willing passer. He's a more committed defender. Every He's checked all the boxes. And I would say that he has unquestionably been the best backup player in the NBA since he joined the Knicks. And it's a volume issue that keeps me from putting him ahead of Joe Ingles for number one, but I damn sure thought about doing it. And if you have followed me on Twitter or on this podcast for any amount of time, you know, that it was really hard for me to do that, but his play has justified it.
0: Yeah. I think it's strictly a, for me, it was just a playing time thing where all the other guys on this list have played significantly more, more minutes. And it was, it, everyone, uh, and I think we need to discuss why Jordan Clarkson is third for you or wasn't on my ballot for the past, like 30 something games He's shooting under 32% from three. There's definitely value in the shots that he's taking. And as you've mentioned, there's you high utility in that volume scoring role. I just think the perception was he's going to run away with this award. And that was at the beginning of the season and we've yet to move off it. You know, reality kind of caught up to that take and I don't, I don't think it's wrong if he wins I'm actually not sure who's going to win this reward. Everyone still assumes it's going to be him. Maybe it will be. I think it's fair game to discuss other players, especially when you have Joe Ingles has the highest true shooting percentage in NBA history among anyone yeah, who's I mean, ever two averaged, trillion. Right, among anyone who's ever averaged fifteen um, points, at least fifteen points for thirty six minutes and five assists for thirty six minutes, the highest true shooting percentage of, of M- in NBA history among that group. Do you know who's in second place?
2: No, but you're going to tell me.
0: Stephen Curry owns the second and third most efficient s- seasons, rounded out in the top five by Steve Nash at four and John Stockton at five.
2: Pretty decent company, I suppose. Noah in the, uh, in the locker room comments says, listening to Adam slowly turn into a Knicks fan has been beautiful. Um, yeah, I suppose that's kind of what's happened this season. Like, I've, I've very much bought into this team. But, Noah, I promise you that I will reverse course starkly during the upcoming first round of the playoffs.
0: That's great that the chats are not updating for me in locker room. I had no idea that he had said anything. So it looks like my app is frozen, which I hope this means we get the audio for this. Talk about another live podcasting, uh, whatever. Anyway, you want to move on to the next award, which would be defensive player of the year. And it's yours to, to take. Are we day.
2: saving MIP for a second to last or a third to last then? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Is there a discussion here? It's Rudy Gobert. <laughs> Like, that, that that's it. He's the defensive system unto himself. He is, without question, the best drop coverage defender in the league today, maybe the best in that role of all time. Don't think that's hyperbolic at this point. He, despite what people want to say about him being played off the court in previous postseasons, which I still think there's more to it than, than simplifying it into just that one statement, he is a dominant defense when he's on the court by himself, regardless of who you put around him. And no one should really touch him in this award yet again. The only reason it might be even somewhat close is if voter fatigue comes into play. Um, I have Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, both from the same team in second and third. I have Giannis Antetokounmpo and Bam Adebayo in fourth and fifth. So honorable mentions for me. I, I have to give a shout-out to Miles Turner as well. Had he played more this season, I think that he could have worked his way into that top three. But this is Gobert running away. And I, I don't think much much justification is necessary. Like, Just go read the piece that, that Ben Dowsett wrote on 538 the other day, where for once in a blue moon, all the defensive metrics agree that he's having a historic season. That doesn't happen. That's telling.
0: The volume of shots he contests at the rim combined with the efficiency he's allowing there is in easily historical. He was first on my ballot, followed by Ben Simmons, and then I have Draymond Green at third. The Warriors have quietly had, relative to this season, a very good defense, and he remains the heart and soul of it. And he's just one of, the, the smart, one of probably one of the smartest defenders in NBA history, definitely the smartest defender of his generation. And just everything he does, what he can do when he's small, when he's going to give you all that weak side help and directing everyone else, just absolutely huge. And uh, I don't know that he has a case to be any higher than three. I'm curious to see if, if anyone will ever put him in the top three or how many top three votes he actually gets. Ben Simmons's versatility is there's the thought process that you can't impact defense as much as a perimeter player because the shots that a lot of these guys take, they're going to make anyway, these really difficult jumpers. But I still think there's an immense value in being able to defend every position. And he doesn't spend too much time on big bigs, but he guards one through four pretty regularly. And he is more so than anyone else on the perimeter, maybe a locked in Kawhi. You have OG Ananobi on there too, when you're looking at on ball defenders, but he can erase really good players from, from the planet. And we've seen him do it in the playoffs before too. I don't think though, that he is like a real case over Rudy Gobert. And like you said, maybe there is that fatigue with Gobert. There's also the belief that he can be played off the floor in the playoffs, which is also not true. There was a very specific matchup that was a problem for him. That matchup no longer exists because of Houston. And Utah kind of figured out a way to keep him on the floor in that series they ended up losing. So I, it, it the perception there is veered too far away from reality. That's another instance of that. So I think he should be the clear winner. And I don't know that anyone could convince me it should be Ben Simmons over him.
2: As convoluted as this statement may seem, I think you can make a case that Ben Simmons is the best defender in basketball because of the wide variety of roles he's able to fill without sacrificing his level of performance um, and the impact that he can make across the board. But Rudy Gobert has a much more important role. And it's as simple as that. Like, it's great to have that guy who can guard every position, who can seamlessly switch around the perimeter and on the interior and impact passing lanes and do everything that Ben Simmons does so well. But having a dominant rim protector who can also hedge out to the perimeter and deter three-point shots and still manage to drop back and impact plays around the rim on the very same possession, that's just so much more important than anything else in today's NBA. So... Gobert is just an absolute master of his more specific craft, and if you want to say that Ben Simmons is the best defender in the NBA because of how many different things he can do well, like go for it. But this is a value award.
0: I'm I'm totally with you there, and I I liked your honorable mentions there. Definitely Embiid, that he played more, might have been higher on my ballot. Giannis Antetokounmpo is someone that people have have slept on. There, he's doing more than just disrupting plays as a helper this year, as the Bucks have switched on a more frequent basis. So, but they're just to me as to reiterate, there doesn't appear to be a debate. There also doesn't appear to be a debate on this next award, which we should be able to blow through aside from my runner up. And I believe your runner up as well. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Rookie of the year, this one is mine to begin with. I have a mellow ball at one quick question. Would you have had the mellow ball at one? Had he not played another game this season? Yes. Yeah, me too. I have Tyrese Halliburton at number two and Anthony Edwards at number three. I think people, and well, we know people because Dumb Dan, by the way, are going to be mad that he's in third. That, first of all, considering where the point from which he was starting, he was so bad on offense for such a huge chunk of the year that he worked his way into third is a a testament to him, a harbinger of how far he has come. But the first part of the season absolutely happened. And so you look at, like, I don't know if you can pinpoint the exact turning point for him really but if you look at his first 36 games of the season 30.2 percent on threes 37.1 percent from the floor overall had almost as many turnovers as assists under 15 points per game that was that was fine like there was a marketed shift in the way that he was playing and those first 36 games which is half of the season they happened and for Tyrese Halliburton not as flashy as a scorer but he does everything else. And he was more efficient and more consistent throughout the entire year. Do I think that he's going to have the higher ceiling than Anthony Edwards? I don't think it's impossible, but I would bet against it. So this, but this is not a long-term award. This is this season specifically. And I think Tyrese Haliburton provided more end-to-end value than Anthony Edwards. And he did just a bunch of his work in the latter half. Which is, you know, it's, it's great, and I don't want to dismiss what he's done. It was, it was a half-season's body of exceptional work, though. Maybe a little bit longer.
2: It's all about how you frame this award. Is it the level a player reached in his final game as a rookie? Or is it who added the most value and was the best player from start to finish? I tend to think it should be the latter, which is why my ballot is exactly the same as yours in the top three with LaMelo Ball at number one, Tyrese Halliburton at number two, and Anthony Edwards at number three. I have Emmanuel Quickly and Jay Sean Tate among a litany of options as my primary honorable mentions here. But, yeah, just to expand on Anthony Edwards, we had – I'm trying to look up who it was who asked this, um, and I'm not able to find it at the moment, but we had somebody ask um, if they could see how Anthony Edwards' TPA has progressed from the start of his rookie season through this point. And, you know, we, we did put that out. It's on the NBA math Twitter feed and you can see just how much his score is plummeting into the negatives. But then in mid March, from that point through the present, he has actually been a plus. He has had positive TPA from that point, which means that he has played like an above average NBA player. You know, I'm not saying TPA is a perfect metric. It's definitely not, but, Measuring relative, I I appreciate it. You're wrong. I appreciate it.
0: Um, Dumb Dan strikes again.
2: (laughs) But yeah, I mean, just rookies aren't supposed to be above average players. Halliburton and LaMelo Ball per TPA are the only ones and, and quickly as well, I believe, who have managed to maintain that throughout their rookie season. And for Edwards to do that when he's taking so many shots and filling such a difficult role for a not great Minnesota Timberwolves team, that's a situation designed to trip up virtually every first-year player in NBA history, and he has taken on that level of responsibility and turned himself into a positive contributor this quickly. That's why he's there at number three, despite being historically inefficient during the first half of the season. Yeah, the volume matters that, that he's putting up. Yeah, the flashy highlight reel dunks matter, but like he wasn't a good player for the first half of the season. And this is not a he reached this level award. Like, if, if you're asking me to rank the futures of these players, it's probably a debate between LaMelo and Edwards at number one and then Halliburton next, and then everyone else. But that's not what this is.
0: Who is? Who do you think the fourth best rookie was?
2: I think quickly. Probably
0: between... That most impressed me, and this might make people angry, I'm probably between quickly, and as I already mentioned, I would 100% consider putting quickly on the first team of all-rookie, and I had him on second after we first did it. But Isaiah Stewart is there for me.
2: Sadiq Bey is up there.
0: Sadiq Bey's up there. Uh, Jay Sean Tate, for sure.
2: I mean, he was on my honorable, honorable mentions.
0: So I, that, I'm just curious. That's like the more interesting debate is, okay, mm. we have that. Those are the top three, regardless of – what, right. What, how how you order them? I mean, I if I if someone wanted to say that Halliburton is the rookie of the year, or even wants to make the case for Edwards because they want to look at the the difficulty of Edwards' role for most of the year, the fact that he played more minutes. That's you know I'll listen to it. Uh, but those are the top three, and there's just so there's not really wiggle room. I think you could you know some people might make a case for yeah it's Patrick Williams. I think you could make a case for if you want to go fourth best rookie. So there's just a bunch. You can. Of you shouldn't. You can. I'm just saying, I was curious to see what you had there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think any iteration of those top three is justifiable. Anything else, like, I'm sorry, but it's just wrong.
0: Are you ready to have a, as this team's thing still goes off in the background, are you ready to have a fun fact quickly about, not Emmanuel quickly, but Tyrese Halliburton, the rookie of the years, the past five of them to match his value over replacement player? Have any? Yes. Many of them. Um, can you name – would you care to take a stab, or you just want me to read the list?
2: Let's just hear them.
0: Uh, he has a value over replacement player vorp of Warp of 1.4. The past five rookies to match or exceed that, Brandon Clark last season, Luka Doncic in 2018-2019, Mitchell Robinson in 2018-2019, Donovan Mitchell in 17-18, and then Ben Simmons and Jason Tatum tied in 2017-2018 as well. So it's six across those years. That's you had to qualify for the minutes per game leaderboard. I don't think he's gonna have the ceiling of most of those players. That's super encouraging company though.
2: For sure. I mean, we we Halliburton was our pick going into the season, I believe.
0: I really wish the Knicks still would have taken him, even though Top, top has been better. Noah, if you're still in the room because my app is frozen, I I hope you at least agree with with that Knicks take. The next award I have penciled in. Probably a little bit more of a debate. There's not really a debate here. I have most improved player. There's
2: There's not a debate at the top. It's Julius Randle. We've talked about it on previous episodes. No one else should really touch him in this conversation. I think it's the rest of the ballot that's most interesting. So I have Jeremy Grant at number two. Just the ability to come into Detroit and take on a massively expanded role that really pushed the limitations he had as a player and to thrive in it prior to getting injured was huge. I mean, he seemed like the early front runner and justifiably so. Uh, Number three, I actually have Nikola Jokic. Uh, It doesn't, you typically don't see those star level players show up on most improved player ballots. I think erroneously to me, 2015, 16, Steph Curry, 2018, 19, Giannis Antetokounmpo should have been MIP candidates because the level at which they were playing rose so dramatically, which pushed them into not just getting into the MVP race, but actually winning it. Uh, That's what we're seeing here, where Jokic was a top 10 player last year, who's now being talked about by reputable outlets as maybe the best basketball player in the world. He has risen his level of play dramatically in virtually every area, most impressively as a scorer, where he's no longer as deferential and looking to pass quite as frequently, but is actively calling his own number. Those baseline spins are just flat-out unstoppable. He's not going to be on the ballot for most people. But if you're talking about looking at how much value a player added this season and comparing it to how much value a player added last season, he should be there. Um, Behind him, as my honorable mentions, I have Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who probably would have been in the top three had he not gotten injured, maybe. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I also have Michael Porter Jr. And I know that second-year players aren't typically put in this conversation because they're expected to improve. But you just look at what he's done for this Nuggets team in staving off the expected precipitous drop-off that should have occurred after Jamal Murray went down. And by expanding his game and becoming that much more vital to everything that Denver has done, he he has starkly improved more than you would typically expect from a second-year player, even one who had that red-shirt season as he was recovering from his back injury during what should have been his true rookie season.
0: The Michael Porter Jr. I have the similar ballot to you. I have Julius Randle up front ahead of Jeremy Grant, who I had at number one for a lot of the year. Him missing time with an injury certainly hurt him. It got to a point though where his deficiency uh deficiency, where his efficiency declined, and his growth was strictly as a scorer. Like he was not someone passing. The assist numbers went up by virtue of him just having the ball more. It wasn't him improving as a passer. And Julius Randle was throwing all different kinds of passing passes and was the engine, is the engine of the Knicks offense. Might not be the greatest offense. It's been more efficient over the second half of the year. I had Shea Gilgis Alexander in third, and I'm kind of convinced that had he stayed healthy for the rest of the year, that I would have landed with Shea Gilgis Alexander in first. And so Noah, if you're still in the room, again, I cannot see anything on locker room. I'm rolling through blind. Kept my screen open because this is being recorded, so I see the time going up. That's all I see. Uh, He, when you look at how his role changed, he went from being this secondary tertiary option, number two or number three his first two years, to being number one. And his efficiency actually improved this year 87 point one percent of his shots went unassisted and if I'm regurgitating the numbers these numbers from past podcasts one they're that important and two he's been injured for so long that there's nothing else to talk about he to hold that efficiency over such a difficult role where you don't have another creator on your team can you guess who is second or can you guess who leads the team in unassisted field goal um, shares since he's been injured <laughs>
2: Like Basley,
0: Yes. Nice. It's Baisley and Tao Maladone are like deadlocked high. None, neither of them are over – they're not even at 60% of their field goal makes going unassisted. That's – you know, not every team necessarily needs that, but there's always that one player that has like three – feels like two-thirds or three-quarters of a shot's going unassisted. No one in the NBA who appeared in a minimum of 15 games has a higher unassisted field goals made rate than Shea Gildas The only other players in the league – who are um, matching his scoring and assists per game while shooting as well on twos and threes, Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry. When you look at then what Shea does defensively, he has not had to guard the number one option as often as you would think someone like him would because you have, you know, Lou Dort exists. That's the best way to put it. Lou Dort exists. But he finds himself on number two and number three a hell of a lot. He can be disruptive on that. And probably isn't where he should be. And I don't know that he improved, But the fact that he held his value there while assuming such a higher usage role on offense is important to me. That would be my case for him over Julius Randle. Again, had Shea played longer, I think Julius Randle's supporting cast is exponentially better than what Shea Gilchrist-Alexander had around for most of the year. George Hill wasn't playing, Ariza never reported. They were always kind of treating Al Horford with kid gloves. So I think he had a real case to win it, not just make the top three had he not gotten injured.
2: How many picks do you think Sam Presti is going to get for Shea Gildas Alexander when he shopped?
0: Whoa, you think he's going to shop him? No, I don't. I don't. You max him out this season, right? right. You Absolutely. A- My prediction for that is they max him out with no player options. And that's the concession that he sort of makes. Because I don't know if I feel like you and I consider him a no brainer, Max. I'm not sure if everyone else does. I don't know if that's like at the point. They should, games. though. They should. I'm totally in agreement. Although Planner Fascia is like, that's not something to really write off. And so maybe right. that factors into it. The final award, which is mine to start, it's MVP. And this is not interesting until we got to the runner-ups. Nikola Jokic, let's start there. Nicole Are the runner-ups
2: even that interesting? The order of them is to me. I guess.
0: Nikola Jokic is number one for me. Adam did not have him number one. He, in fact, did not even make your top five, right?
2: Yeah, he was ninth on my ballot.
0: I don't, what is the argument against Nicole Jokic at this point?
2: That he historically wouldn't stack up against the previous 25 winners of the award or some bullshit like that. There isn't one.
0: It doesn't exist at this point. I think the only thing you could make is if you threw playing time out the window, you could argue Joel Embiid at a higher per minute impact because of what he can do defensively. But the minutes gap is monstrous. So as someone who had Joel Embiid in front at the beginning of the year, I have him at number two. I have Giannis at number three, which talk about fatigue. We've overlooked. You mentioned him in the defensive player of the year conversation. Uh, He should probably make all defense. I'm not sure. We haven't gone through those yet. We will. And uh, his scoring is basically posting the same numbers as last year. I think he's improved a bunch as a passer. We're seeing him do more things on offense, maybe not as efficiently, but he still does have – he's going to take the pull-up jumpers. He's going to take those fadeaways. He's being used as a screener more. Those, the numbers on him being used as a screener are very touch-and-go. But the fact that he's doing it, and he's not even finishing plays a bunch as that, the fact that that option just sort of exists and maybe could be used as a decoy a little bit, I think it's huge. There's you – know, there, you can't – we talk about two-way value. How many more players are, are valuable – more valuable at both ends of the floor than him? You can count them on one hand if you even need that much. I have Steph at number four probably the most controversial inclusion. I think people focus too much on team record. When you look at everyone who has logged at least 250 minutes this year, no one has a bigger net rating swing than Stephen Curry. Like the drop-off between the Warriors minutes with and without him is is huge, gargantuan, incomprehensible even. He lifts them from being the worst team in the league to an actual playoff team. That is, I think, the, the lift that Jokic has made, a good team – to a great one when he's on the court, I do think that's harder. It was the argument with Giannis last year. The one that Steph is doing though, that's from that's ground zero to competency, obscurity to relevance. That's a that's a hugely difficult one to make. And I have Doncic at five. I'm wondering if he should even be higher than that a little bit. Just he is everything to the Dallas Mavericks. Still, we talk about like you know the workload that Nikola Jokic has that, uh, you know, Shea Gilders alexander has. Like, he is taking – he creates everything from scratch for the Dallas Mavericks. And he salvages many shooting splits for Dallas because so many players depend on him to create – to tee up looks for them.
2: We talked about him a little bit on the all hardwood Knox team when we didn't have him on the first team. And I think it's the same argument here where it's like the Dallas Mavericks have not lived up to preseason expectations – which had them maybe ascending towards the top spot in the Western Conference, earning home court advantage in the first round and all that. And Doncic was the betting favorite for MVP going into the season. So as magnificent and important as he's been, he's he's viewed through the narrative lens of disappointment. And I think that might be why he's not making either of our ballots. I'll also say I'm glad that you went first here because I'm feeling so much MVP fatigue this season. Like The number of ways people have tried to relitigate Jokic's obvious placement at number one has been so draining and exhausting that I have lost almost all desire to talk about this particular award. So I'll just run through my ballot here. I have Jokic at number one. I have Steph at number two. I have Giannis at number three. I have Embiid at number four. And I do have Chris Paul at number five. Uh, just the culture change that he's impacted in Phoenix, the ability to make everyone, maybe with the exception of DeAndre Ayton, around him that much better and make life easier for Devin Booker. It's so important. I get why he's been mentioned in MVP conversations. I think it's ridiculous that he's been put in the top three or been billed as this somewhat legitimate challenger to Jokic when one of those doesn't really exist. But he deserves a lot of credit this year. You know, you could, you could put Doncic in that spot. I really strongly considered putting Damian Lillard in that spot. You okay. could have Booker if you wanted to. Um, you could have Rudy Gobert if you wanted to. Uh, but I'm going to go with CP3. That's
0: really the only... Well, I mean, your ballot was so similar to mine. I don't know how I could have a problem with it. CP3 is the only, if I was to be spicy, I don't think he belongs anywhere near the top five. I wouldn't think Booker does either because the culture change began last year in the bubble. You saw it with the way that Monty Williams was changing the team. And I think he's, he deserved a lot of credit for how good they are this year. There were other moves made. We talked about them when discussing James Jones that helped this team. If you take Chris Paul off this Phoenix Suns roster and, okay, bring back all the players that they gave up to get him, Kelly Oubre, Ricky Rubio, and... Um, Ty Jerome, this is the best supporting cast that Devin Booker has ever mm-hmm. had, by far and away. Mm-hmm. And So, that's where I could, I would put Gobert there before him. I'd put Dame there before him. I think him and Booker are probably the most equitable 1-2 partnership in the league. Maybe a fully healthy Kevin Durant and James Harden, which we did not see pretty much ever. I think Gobert and Donovan Mitchell were pretty much there, but when you look at the minutes disparity between those two, that's where it sort of strays away. We covered all the awards, though. Did we not?
2: We did. We've hit them all.
0: Is there any, again, I cannot see what's happening. Do we have any questions or anything in the chat before we get the F out?
2: We do not. My only question for you is when was the last time LeBron James was not top five on an MVP ballot?
0: Holy hell. I mean, this has, is this the most games he's missed in his, there was the first, Oh, cause he had that first. It's the longest
2: career. absence of his career. But yeah, he, he actually did finish 11th in 2018-19. Yeah. But beyond that, you have to go back to 2005.
0: Wild. The, Wild. And look, had he never gotten injured? Is he probably top three in this?
2: I think if he never got injured, you're looking at a lot of people trying to push him ahead of Jokic. I,
0: I meant on legitimate ballots, not the ones that have the... <laughs> uh, look, look, here's my thing. I'm not rewarding LeBron James in 2021 for what he's done it's impressive over the past two decades, basically, but it's about this year. And I right. do think he was snubbed in other years, at least the Derrick Rose, Dwight Howard year. That for felt sure like should have been a LeBron year. I, but I, he was legitimately in the conversation until Jokic ran away with it. And he, Jokic just ended up checking too many boxes. The Jamal Murray injury, devastating, but it helped him in the sense that you want the narrative, oh, d- like does the most with the least type deal you just lost the second best player on your team your second most valuable offensive player and yeah michael porter jr stepped up but the nuggets have still been good without murray so this should
2: this should be one of those seasons like lebron in 2013 or steph in 2016 where it's like there's just not even a question
0: yeah and this one's going to be split though it's not even i don't think it's going to be close to unanimous because i think people are going to push embiid they're going to push curry those feel like the three like the agenda driven ones mm. It feels like this one shouldn't be hard to pick at all. You'll, you'll We're probably
2: going to get, like, a couple random one-off votes for Julius Randall. That's fine.
0: Oh, that did you consider him in the top five at all? No. I, looking at the other players, I didn't either. Top ten? Maybe. he's definitely Yeah, for in the top sure. 10 probably. For sure. Uh, that does it for us, though. If you have not checked out this podcast before and are listening at the moment, Hardwood Knox, at Hardwood Knox, but exactly like it sounds on Twitter – Subscribe to us, listen to us. We have a bunch of fun other stuff. You will get podcasts we've already done for our regular listeners. We've done all rookie, we've now done awards. We will be doing all NBA and all defense as well. Until next time, though, we leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, unanimous executive of the year, James Jones. That one felt right.
1: Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G.